2: London's property bubble, we
3: look at what could be coming along to prick it. Is it time to bail out of bond proxies? We hear from veteran fund manager Terry Smith, who has come up with a pretty punchy argument. And the service sector, surprises on the upside. Were those Brexit bashing economists wrong after all, or is this a case of false optimism? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you the week's money news in downloadable form. The Brexit vote and a series of tax and regulatory changes have had a distinctly dampening effect on the capital's property market. Is it finally the moment to call time on the 20-year story of London house price growth? FT Money has been assessing the balance of evidence for home buyers and property investors, and I'm joined in the FT studio by the independent property expert and buying agent Henry Pryor and James Pickford, deputy editor of FT Money, who has written all about the issue this week. Welcome both! Starting with Henry... Hit me with your data stick. What's been happening to transaction levels and prices in the London market since the vote?
0: Well, we won't know officially until the government's formal barometer, the Office for National Statistics, publish their take on the market post-Brexit, which uh, will be next week. But anecdotally, thus far, selling agents suggest that they've hardly paused for breath. But there is some significant evidence to suggest now that both transaction volumes in the capital and prices, more importantly, have started to slide. But I would underline that this is not specifically down to Brexit. Most commentators would suggest that this was already happening. Indeed, in the pages of the FT earlier this spring, I talked about whether we had seen the peak of the housing market in the capital and I believe that by Christmas time we're going to look back and that will indeed be the case. So the reduction in transactions, can
3: this be explained by vendors refusing to come down on prices if they don't absolutely have to sell? Are they simply withdrawing from the market?
0: Well there's no doubt that we've got less homes for sale both in London and across the country. We're we're seeing probably 30% fewer instructions, estate agents therefore scrabbling around for business and on occasions uncomfortably buying business which doesn't help anybody, sellers or indeed buyers. How, how do you
3: mean buying business?
0: Well, the two ways that estate agents always collectively get new businesses by giving optimistic ideas of what somebody may get for their property oh, and right. by quoting a low fee. We're seeing massive changes in the estate agency sector, which James has reported on previously, with a new entrants coming into the market, charging incredibly low fees just to list your property. But when housing supply gets tight, estate agents will buy business, in inverted commas, by giving uh, flattering expectations of price. They get the instructions, but then subsequently only sell it for the market price, inevitably leaving a sour taste for those who've been taken in by this argument. But Mm -hmm. back to what the numbers are telling us, I think that we'll certainly, we can say that post-Brexit, the buyers have been more reluctant to commit. They've still got the money, unlike at the end of the credit crunch in 2008, and they still have the desire to move. But what they need is to be convinced that now is a safe time to do that. And so we're going to see, I think, that friction, that transaction friction, which came about perhaps earlier in the year with uh, George Osmond's changes to stamp duty land tax in particular, that's really bitten. And that's what's been the drag on the housing market in the capital.
3: And what about foreign buyers? Are they being attracted by weaker sterling? How much of that is going on? And frankly, is it enough to cushion price falls over the market as a whole in London?
0: Well, if you were to read what most of the selling agents are putting out, thank goodness, hooray for the foreign buyer who has indeed seen a massive gain because of the changes to currencies but I'm afraid that as a cynical buying agent I'm not actually seeing that on the ground and in any event overseas buyers don't actually make a huge difference to the capital's housing market and a very important sector but they're not going to keep the housing sector alive on their own and most international buyers have also read the signs that as a government and indeed with our Brexit result and decision that we're perhaps not as encouraging and enthusiastic about them coming to participate even if we can offer them property that appears cheaper to them simply because of the currency.
3: Mm, interesting and bringing in James Pickford now you've been examining how sentiment has shifted among property investors so what's been the impact of Brexit so far on the buy to let market in London?
2: Well just as with Henry mentioned in the residential market we're still waiting for the formal data to give us a very clear uh, picture on Brexit but what we do have from anecdotal reports from estate agents from buy-to-let lenders, is that there is a slowdown in these things. And it's not only because of Brexit, but it was coming down the line ahead of that because of tax changes, Uh, not only the stamp duty surcharge for buy-to-let second homes, but also a reduction in higher rate relief on mortgage interest payments. And the Bank of England is considering further action to set affordability measures for the first time coming in for buy-to-let lenders. But of course, London is a bit of an anomaly for, for buy-to-let uh, in that it's the most important market in the country for it, mm-hmm. um, both by volume and by the portion of transactions accounted for by buy-to-let. But at the same time, the rental yield in London is one of the lowest in the country. Mm. And it has been for quite a long time. And that's because people have expectations of high capital growth. That is one of the things that a lot of people think will now have to change in the face of a number of headwinds, whether it's Brexit or external events in America, an election coming up. Lots and of uncertainty there. Lots of uncertainty <laughs> in Europe too.
3: OK, well, thank you very much. That was Henry Pryor and James Pickford, Depsy Money Editor. You can read James's cover feature has London's property bubble burst from this Friday online at ft.com slash money and in FT Money as part of your FT Weekend newspaper. Still to come on The Money Show, the great service sector surprise. Bond proxies, the catchy term used to describe shares in companies whose dependable dividend streams have resulted in rather fulsome valuations, leave investors in a double bind. On the one hand, they're one of the few routes to income. On the other, they don't come cheap. I'm joined by Terry Smith, Chief Executive of Fundsmith, who kicks off a two-part column in this weekend's edition of FT Money. Terry, welcome to The Money Show.
4: Thank you. Let's jump straight in. Are the bond proxies overvalued? Well, it's interesting that uh, you said in your introductory remarks, that they don't come cheap. And I think, first of all, I've got to agree with that. And okay. secondly, I've got to say, over the course of my career, which sort of, I don't know whether I should be proud or worried to say spans over 40 years now. Be proud. I've been asked whether a share is cheap or expensive many, many, many more times than I've been asked whether it was a good or a bad company. People focus far more on valuation than they do on whether it's actually something that they would like to own. Okay. And I think that's probably the wrong way of looking at it if you are a long-term investor. And I suppose my stricture would be, and if you're not a long-term investor, maybe you shouldn't be thinking about equities anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but companies of the sort that the label Bompoxy applies to, you know, we're talking about in the UK companies like Unilever and Reckitt, Benkiser and Diageo and, and Continental Europe, Danone and Pernod Ricard and America, Procter & Gamble and Colgate and so on, certainly um, have had an appreciation in valuation in recent years as people have reached for yield, and they're certainly rated a bit above the market average. But I'm not sure that's the main consideration that people should have in their mind.
3: Well, in your column this weekend, you point out that some commentators have been warning about the valuations of bond proxies for the past few years, during which time, of course, they've continued to swell in value.
4: Yes, indeed. I mean, look, this is not the main point, I think, about arguing about whether the valuation of them is too rich or not. Far from it. But it is an important point to know that I reckon I can track back to 2013 commentators who said bond proxies, they seem to have become very popular with investors as a result of the very low level of interest rates and yields that we're now finding. And they're overvalued. And therefore, the strategy is, is a dangerous one because of that reason to, to focus on these shares. And you know, if I track that back, which is about three years, mm. on average, an investment in bomb proxies, and I'm not taking my fund or any other particular fund, I'm looking at the whole universe of them and looking at what they've done. They've gone up about 100% in the meantime. I mean, one might actually draw the conclusion from that, an indeed the conclusion I would head towards, that the danger might be in ignoring them.
3: Well, yes, and certainly looking ahead to next week's column, part two, you've decided to compare today's bond proxy stocks with the so-called Nifty 50. These are the 50 companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange that were considered a one-way bet for investors back in the 1960s and 1970s. Give us a glimpse of your findings.
4: Yeah, I mean, I've looked at it by, as you say, in the second part, looking at the nifty 50, because a lot of people do refer back to the nifty 50 when they're talking about the bond proxies. They say, oh, the bond proxies are overvalued, and the nifty 50 was very overvalued, and the subsequent performance of the nifty 50, in which people lost a lot of money, and in fact, lost more than the market downturn, which occurred at the end of that period, shows you the problems of buying into one of these strategies, irrespective of these high valuations. And yeah, I have had a look at this. In terms of the nifty 50, because in my experience, people often bandy terms around like, "Ah, well, the nifty 50 and what they did. They much more rarely go back and actually have a look Mm. at what occurred and try to draw some conclusions from it. And, you know, without lifting the veil hopefully too much on what we're going to have in the article I would say, I think there are some potentially rather alarming conclusions that you can draw from an examination of what happened with the nifty-fifty, but they're not necessarily the most obvious ones. But it does say something, I think, about a certain segment of the market now and what it's rated at and what you might expect which I would find, I think, quite alarming if I were invested in certain things.
3: Well, thanks very much. That was Terry Smith, Chief Executive of Fundsmith, and you can read his first column now on FT. with the second instalment on the Nifty Fifty to follow next week. Finally, politicians have been revelling in the latest economic data. An influential survey on how the UK's dominant services sector performed in August showed its largest month-on-month gain in its 20-year history. The PMI survey released on Monday showed the impact of weaker sterling has been both good and bad for business, boosting exports and attracting more foreign tourists – but price inflation is also rising. I'm joined in the FT studio by Emily Cadman, the FT's economics reporter. Welcome. Thanks, Claire. So does this mean that all of those economists who said that the economy would be hit hard by Brexit were wrong? No. No. Not necessarily. (laughs) I think what's really important, Claire, is to
1: distinguish between two things about the economic impact of Brexit. There's what's going to happen in the short term, because remember, Brexit hasn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. The vote's been decided, but we've got no idea what our long-term relationships are going to be. Most of the dire economic forecasts about the implications of Brexit were really about the long term. They were looking about how we would be in sort of 15 years time if we're outside the EU compared to how we would be if we'd remained in it. We don't yet have enough information to know whether they were right or wrong. But one thing it does mean is it doesn't look likely that the UK is heading for a recession imminently in the short
3: term. Well yes, I mean, what are the next crucial bits of economic data that readers and listeners should be looking out for?
1: The biggest bit of economic data that all the Chancellor policymakers at the Bank of England really want to know is business investment. Sadly we're not actually going to get that until just before Christmas. That's our first hard data on whether businesses have actually cancelled plans like some of them said they're going to or whether it's been business as usual. So without that what we're going to be looking for is a series of incremental data releases showing how things are actually performing so a really big one is going to be third quarter GDP mm-hmm. that's going to come in the autumn and that's going to show whether the economy has as we now expect slowed but not contracted
3: and as for interest rate cuts any more of those on the agenda I think it's
1: very unlikely there will interest rate cut next month it was always a long shot and considering that the Bank of England launched a big package of measures in August mm. but there were some voices in the city who said that there might be another one. That's highly unlikely now. However, November is still a possibility. Remember the Bank of England didn't actually predict a recession, they predicted stagnant growth mm. and they said that if the surveys developed as they expected they might do another interest rate cut. Well, so far they've been a little bit better than expected but not that much better. November's still a possibility, but it's less likely than it was before.
3: Well, thanks very much there to Emily Cadman, economics reporter at the FT, and of course we will be keeping you updated on all of that economic data as and when it happens. We'd love to hear your views on investing in the post-Brexit economy, the future for bond proxies, and money matters more generally. Email us, money at ft.com, tweet us at ftmoney, or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. The Money Show will be back next Thursday at the usual time goodbye. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com podcasts.